Well, good to see you tonight and looking forward with great anticipation to our chapter. If you'd like to look ahead for Sunday morning, we'll be in Acts 25, looking at verses 1 through 12 and uh, continuing Paul's imprisonment. And uh, he's going to switch uh, interrogators, if you will, and now uh, sit down in front of uh, Festus. And uh, we'll look at that in detail over the next few weeks. But this evening, here we go. You ready? Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel 9. Now, I'll remind you, even though it was just a week ago, that last week we titled our message, War and Peace. And we did so noting that chapter 7 opened with the statement that God had given, given David rest all around from all of his enemies. And then we move directly into chapter 8 and find that it's a chapter of a series of wars that David was fighting seven different enemies. And twice we're told that the Lord was with him or preserved David wherever he went. Now, we noted that what was prophesied, in essence, in chapter 7 was fulfilled through chapter 8 in that it was through these wars that David experienced the peace that God has foretold. And we recognize that we as the church are not to engage in killing our enemies. Somebody say amen tonight. But we are to engage in warfare nonetheless. And we took our time to remind ourselves about the spiritual warfare that we're all encountering. Now, that doesn't mean we don't participate in the defense of our country through our military or even defending ourselves. But it does mean we don't assemble ourselves together as a militant force and seek out non-believers to kill them. And uh, that is something that is sadly part of the church's past. But let's leave the past in the past. Now, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5 reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are what? Mighty in God for the purpose of pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, since we have weapons, we are at war. And our weapons are effective in the things that Paul described to the church at Corinth, including pulling down strongholds the enemy seeks to establish in our hearts and minds, casting down the arguments he makes against God's love for us and the other things he is constantly attacking and doing so by the power and authority of the word of God and the Holy Spirit who is in us and with us and comes upon us. Now, in our text, we need to remember David was a king of the Jews. And thus, he was not the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews is about to come on the world scene uh, in seven years or so. Amen? Amen. Yet, he was responsible for either obtaining or regaining the land that God had promised to his chosen people, people. And he had the responsibility for the national interest of Israel and the protection of the people. Now, <clears throat> we noted that the elusive world peace that the world is desiring and seeking after excuse me, isn't going to come and cannot come until the Prince of Peace brings that peace and he does throw does so through making war with his enemies. And we noted that from Revelation 19.11 and you can read 11 to 16 anytime and we read it last week and be encouraged. And 11 said, Now I saw heaven open, John speaking, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does two things. He judges and does what? 
He makes war. That is how the millennium is going to have peace. The Lord is going to deal with his enemies. Now, I wanted to point that out and use that as our transition verse, if you will, because right now we're going to do a 180. We're going to do a complete reversal of our topic last week, and we're going to move from the ugliness of war and the numbers that were recorded in chapter 8 that David had slain, and now we're going to talk about the beauty of love, kindness, and friendship. Now, we'll do so through the lens of 1 Samuel twenty forty two and an agreement or a vow made by David and his dear friend and brother, Jonathan. And Jonathan, we're told, said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants. For how long? Forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, Jonathan and David would only meet one other time after this. And that was when David was hiding and on the run from Saul. And Jonathan in 1 Samuel 23 went to encourage David. And he also went to tell David, you are going to be the king over Israel. Now, this was a pretty amazing thing for Jonathan to do, considering that he was the rightful heir, at least in human terms, to the throne, being his father's eldest son. Now, the next news that David would hear of Jonathan was of his death. But David never forgot the vow that they swore to each other that we just read in the name of the Lord that they would watch over each other's families forever. Now, as unusual as it was for the heir to the throne to ensure their competitor that they would rise to the throne, so too was it unusual for David to do what he's going to do in our chapter tonight. Because the tradition was to seek out surviving members of a conquered king's family and eliminate them all. And that was the custom of the day of all kings who ascended to the throne. They would simply execute all members of the former king's family in hopes of avoiding a future coup. Now, J. Vernon McGee said of our chapter, and it's a wise uh, statement that he made or an illustration that he drew... And he said, if someone were to hold up a large white board in front of a classroom and on that board there was one black mark in the middle, what would the whole classroom focus on? The one black mark. And they would forget all of the white that was surrounding it. And he said, this is what is often done with King David. He's got a couple black marks on his record and some people, that's all they focus on. And they forget about all the wonderful attributes of David, all the wonderful accomplishments that David did for God's glory and how he loved the Lord and how he sought to please and serve the Lord, even as being a fallible man, just like we are fallible humans here tonight. Now, the fact is, David was a wonderful and God-fearing man, and that's why the Lord dubbed him as the man after his own heart. Now, there is but one title tonight that we can head over our chapter, and there's three lessons that we'll learn from it as we usually do, and our title tonight is simply Unfailing Love. Our title is Unfailing Love. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, of course, we're all familiar with the phrase, love never what? Never fails. But tonight, we're going to see it put into action in the life of David as an example to you and I. Now, the famed love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through the first part of verse 8 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. 
Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Say it with with me. Love what? Never fails. Now, we made the point in the past that Paul strings together 15 Greek verbs that tell us what love is or what love does rather than what love is. And please note, these are all terms associated with actions that we are to take. They aren't emotion and feeling based, even though love is certainly those things too. Now, listen to this. Our title comes directly from 1 Corinthians 13. Our chapter tonight has 13 verses. You know what that means? Nothing. So let's stand and read together 2 Samuel chapter 9. I thought I'd just uh, give you that keen observation there to get things going. 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's read all 13 verses and learn of unfailing love. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded to his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. I think the Holy Spirit was wanting to see how many times we could say Mephibosheth in one chapter. You may be seated. 
Now, the first of our three observations tonight is going to come from our opening four verses, where our point is going to establish our objective through the lens of David's actions. Now, one thing we can do in order to read between the lines a little bit is to come to the recognition that David was totally ignorant as to whether or not Saul actually had any surviving errors, uh, errors through uh, Jonathan's line or any of his uh, other brothers. Now, David seems to be aware that this could be a possibility as he explains the reason for his inquiry. He says, I you know, want to show kindness because of Jonathan and surely in David's mind, the vow he had made with the man who is described as having a kindred spirit with David was certainly in his thoughts. Now, the question would customarily be framed in a different manner as the answer would bring about someone's death normally, not an expression of kindness. Now, we've mentioned this a few times of late, and it seems proper to drive the point home a bit further tonight. And that is what we've quoted from 1 Timothy 3, 7, about having a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach of the snare of the devil. Now, we've made the point that this context of Paul's statement is in regard to the qualifications of one who desires the office of the bishop or the pastor. Having a good testimony, however, is not limited to those who desire to be a pastor or a bishop. It should be true for all of us. That's where you say, Amen. Now, David is proof. As he sends for a servant of Saul, ask if there is a descendant of Saul to whom he could show the kindness of God. Now, Ziba doesn't hesitate to answer, but the fact is, had it been anyone but David, it's likely that Ziba would have answered differently and not immediately disclose that not only is there such a person, but where he is in hiding. Now, Ziba mentions the surviving member of Saul's family was actually a son of Jonathan who was lame in his feet. Now, we encountered how this happened back in 2 Samuel 4, 4, where we're told of Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. And then we're told how it happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this underscores the fact that the nurse well understood if the king's dead, if the three sons older than Mephibosheth are dead, he's next in line to be assassinated by the newly appointed conqueror and king. Now, this is in her uh, efforts to get him to safety is when he fell and became lame in his feet. Yet again, Ziba has no hesitation telling David what he wanted to know. And that means that David's reputation preceded him, which brings us to our objective as practitioners of unfailing love. And here's the first of three things I want you to consider tonight. Listen, our primary reputation should be one of love and kindness. As Christians, our primary reputation should be one of love and kindness. Now, I thought it important to include the word primary in our description because the fact is there are other things that we should be known as or by as well. But they are all actually tentacles or offshoots from our primary reputation of being loving and kind. We should be known for things like evangelism. We should be known for things like generosity. We should be known for things like hospitality. 
We should be known by certain character traits like trustworthy, dependable, and other things that are reflective of our new life in Christ. Now, in thinking back on our last chapter, it'd be easy to understand David having a negative reputation, and yet he does not because David outwardly and visibly loved God, and he demonstrated a love for God's people, including his willingness to fight on their behalf. So when Ziba arrived in front of David, his response to, are you Ziba, was simply, at your service. This wasn't a hypocritical apple polishing. It was a sincere honor to Israel's rightful king, as evidenced by his immediate answer to David's inquiry. Now, when the cultural norm would be to ask in order to find and kill Saul's descendants, why would Ziba reply so quickly and not say, Oh, well, I don't know. I'll have to ask around. Or I don't think there are any. He says, yes, there is. And here's his address immediately. Why? Because in all that David was known for, he was primarily known not just as a great king and as a warrior, but he was known for his love and kindness. And we should be known for those things as well. Somebody say something tonight. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 reminds us that now abide Faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Is love. Now, David kept his word to Jonathan because he loved him. He was of a kindred spirit. They were fellow warriors. They were both valiant in battle. They both knew that King Saul was wrong. They both knew David would be king. Both men wanted to honor God. They were both men of love and kindness, even though they were warriors. And remember, it was Jonathan who initiated the vow between he and David before the Lord. Now, in 1 John 2, 3 to 6, we are reminded, by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Was Jesus love? Was he kind to people? Should we be loving and kind? Should that be our primary reputation? Absolutely. Yet we note Jesus also had a warrior spirit, evidenced by his zeal for his father's house and the exchanges he had with the Pharisees, who he constantly referred to by his pet name, hypocrites. Now, we too ought to walk as he walked. And there are times for us to take the same kind of stands that Jesus took when the church is being abused and things of that nature. Yet we too, like Jesus, are to have the primary aspect of our reputation be that of love and kindness. Now, part of that comes from J. Vernon McGee's illustration. Looking at others, not at the black marks in their life, but rather at the good things that surround their failures, even as we all have our own. This is part of walking in unfailing love. As a matter of fact, that is our objective. Now look at verses 5 through 8 one more time. And then we're told King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lobdabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. 
and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now, whenever we find a list of names, I always like to spend a little time looking into their meanings. And I did so with this particular uh, grouping of Hebrew names. And interesting, I think we all need to keep in mind, David's name actually means beloved. And I like that John referred to himself as the Lord's beloved. And here David certainly is a man of that category. Now, Ziba's name is interesting. It means station or stationary. It can even be the word used to describe a statue. In other words, it was descriptive of him being a man who was steadfast. Now, the next name, I have to be honest with you, kind of shocked me. I thought, why in the world would somebody name their kid this? And his, uh, Makir's name means salesman. I don't even know what to do with that, but that's what it means. Now, Amiel means my kinsman is God. Now, Mephibosheth has an interesting name, too. His name means exterminating the idol. So he was the exterminator, so to speak. And it actually means a dispeller of shame. Shame being associated with the worship of Baal. Now, Lodebar in our Bibles is separated into two words. It's actually one word. One word, and it means not a pasture. So link all that together, and what it says is, Beloved David, as steadfast, if there are any of Saul's house, and where they are, and steadfast says, he's living with a salesman whose dad is a kinsman of God in a house with no pasture. Now, that has nothing to do with anything. I just thought that was kind of funny. Now, when David asked the man who had come to him, if he was the exterminator, so to speak, or Mephibosheth, he falls to his face in prostration before David and says, Here is your servant. Now the young man was very likely terrified because he'd been hiding since he was five years old and now he is sent for by David at his hideout. He certainly had to be in fear and David immediately alleviates his worry and says, do not fear. My intention is to show you kindness because of your father, my dear friend. He then tells him that he's restoring all that was his grandfather's, all the land that belonged to Saul's family. And then he adds that he is going to dine at the king's table from now on or continuously. And Mephibosheth bows again to David, same word translated as prostrate, and says, Who am I that you would look on me with such favor? And I find this statement to be interesting. He calls himself a dead dog. And that was a pretty... uh, interesting assessment of himself. But he had the same mindset, I believe, as David, who said in Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of a man that you visit him? And these two men shared the same mindset, though likely for different reasons. David recognized his lowliness before God. Mephibosheth most likely felt inadequate because of his physical limitations. And his response was, what good am I to you, King David, or anyone for that matter? I'm about as valuable as a dead dog. Now, I think it's important to highlight this because it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Mephibosheth could not come before the king in his own power. He had to be carried before the king by another. And upon his arrival, he would bow before the one who actually held his life in his hands and determined whether he would live or die. And when he arrives before the king, what's he receive? He receives an inheritance. 
Now in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we're told, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, as we talked about Sunday, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now because of this, here's what we can do. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. Now, like Mephibosheth, we too have neither the right or the ability to go behind the veil into the presence of God to the most holy place. We had to be carried by another that we might obtain mercy. And David says to Mephibosheth, do not fear. In essence, he finds grace to help. And David brought him out of hiding and gave him his inheritance in his time of need. Now, this tells us something very practical about unfailing love, having established our objective as having a reputation of being loving and kind, even in the minds of those who are outside, outside of the belief in God, so to speak. Now, here's our next consideration tonight. Listen, very practical, nothing earth-shaking, but something we need to remember. Unfailing love is expressed more than through, through more than just words. Unfailing love is expressed through more than just words. Now, this is obvious, clearly, but David didn't stop at do not fear. He showed his love for Jonathan and his honor of their vow to watch out for and care for each other's families in a very practical way. Now, he could have very easily said, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. Go back to your place of hiding and live in peace at the salesman's house. But that's not what he said. And that's not what we're to do when we express unfailing love either. As Matthew 5.16 reminds us to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then John says in his first epistle in 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in what? Deed and in truth. Now, there are two men doing what is right in this picture. David is showing his unfailing love, not just freeing Mephibosheth from fear, but also relieving him from worry. And twice we're told that he's lame in his feet. And then verse 13 adds, he's lame in both feet. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves into our last section, but here what David did was of great significance. He took Mephibosheth from being dependent to independent. He took Mephibosheth from relying on the constant care of others to constantly caring for others. And all of this happened because the man after God's own heart expressed unfailing love for someone in a very tangible and even life-changing way. Now, James also admonishes us in 2, 14 to 17, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. Now we read earlier that love is greater than faith and hope. That's because love can initiate or restore faith and hope. Faith without works is dead. Hope requires faith. 
And then love, when expressed in ways like David did, is essential, obviously, to practicing unfailing love. And that type of love instills or restores faith and hope, just as it was restored for Mephibosheth as he came out of hiding and into his inheritance. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? Now, look at 9 to 13, and we'll wrap up this wonderful chapter. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. It doesn't tell us how many wives he had. I wonder if that one wife had 15 sons. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was what? Lame in both his feet. Now, as David reveals the restoration of all that belonged to Saul, he refers to Ziba's master's son in relation to Mephibosheth. Now, there's no word in the Hebrew for grandson, so linguistically, Mephibosheth is referred to as son, but the meaning also goes beyond that, because the word translated as son can mean the builder of the family name. In other words, because he was the last surviving member of Saul's household, the family name was at risk of being blotted out. And he didn't want that to happen to his dear friend Jonathan and wanted his name to be honored down through the ages. And David was making sure that Jonathan's name also was not disparaged by poverty, but rather could continue in dignity. And the order was given for the 15 sons and 20 servants of Ziba to work the land, sell the harvest in order that Mephibosheth's family could be provided for, even as the son of Jonathan dined at the king's table with David's son continually. Now, a little reminder from 1 Chronicles 29, 29 and 30. We're told of the acts of King David first and last. Indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer, with all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him to Israel and to all the kingdoms of the lands. Now, I mention that because Samuel has now been long dead. And the Holy Spirit thus directs either Nathan or Gad in verse 13 to advance the narrative and state the fact that this indeed is what happened. The Holy Spirit directs the author to include he was lame in both of his feet. Now, why would this be mentioned for the third time in 2 Samuel? Now, most likely it's to highlight that David was a man of compassion. In other words, he didn't just say, I'll send the guy some food because it'd be a hassle to have to carry this guy. He's a full-grown man back and forth to the table and back and forth to his room every day. And three times, David himself repeated that Mephibosheth would dine at his table like a member of the royal family. Now, we find also another person that marches into the pages of Scripture, then right and directly back out when the mention of Mephibosheth's son, Micah, his name means who is like God. It is an abbreviated form of Michael or Mikael. 
and we know nothing more about him. Yet, introducing him tells us that he was old enough, the Mephibosheth that is, to have a son. And by that established that Mephibosheth's condition was ongoing and permanent. And yet David was such a man of compassion, a man of kindness, and a man of love that he cared for Jonathan's lame son for the rest of his life. Now, the other interesting thing about the narrative here is that David himself never mentions that Mephibosheth is lame because it didn't matter to him. What mattered to him is that he made a vow with his beloved friend and Jonathan's son needed help. Now, This brings us to our concluding point in practicing unfailing love and our second word of instruction, if you will. And it comes from the chapter as a whole. And our third and final point for the night is simply this. Unfailing love is a pursuit, not just a passion. Unfailing love is a pursuit, not just a passion. Now, we have to remember who went looking for who in this story. It was David that initiated the search. Mephibosheth didn't show up at David's house all of a sudden and say, you know what, I've been in hiding for 20 years. This is unjust treatment and I can't take it anymore. You need to do what's right by me or kill me. David initiated the search. David took opportunity or sought out opportunity to make good on his vow to his dear friend Jonathan and his unfailing love for his dear but now deceased friend drove him to seek out opportunity to preserve his friend's family name and inheritance. Now, I'm sure we've all heard someone use or utter the phrase at one point or another that something they experienced restored their faith in humanity. I'm sure we've all heard or even said that particular phrase. Isn't that always associated with some act of kindness or some expression of goodness? You never hear about someone's faith being restored in humanity by some act of evil or some act of violence. It's always somebody's doing something that is unusual outside the norm or contrary to what is the cultural norm, much like David does here. And 1 Corinthians 10.24 reminds us, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's what? Well-being. Isn't that what David was doing? Wasn't he seeking the well-being of the descendants of his dear and deceased friend, Jonathan? And in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we're told, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, we didn't need to quote that because we all do that all the time. Right? Now, isn't that what David did? He sought opportunity to practice unfailing love. He was looking out for the well-being of his dear and beloved friend. And listen, unfailing love is a lifelong pursuit which is also why we're reminded in the last verse that Mephibosheth was lame in both his feet. Still, the whole time, David cared for him. You know, I've had this story rolling around in my mind for some days, actually for probably nearly a month, and I find that tonight is the appropriate night to share it. Are you open to being convicted? Yes, Yes, well, thank you, because this is convicting. And it's a story of a Chinese house pastor who came to America... And his whole house church 
contributed to his ability to travel to the United States so he could attend a pastor's conference in the great United States where the church is strong and thriving. And this was obviously a covert op because should he have been discovered, there would have been an arrest and he never would have made the trip as is often the case in China even today. Now, he came, he attended the conference and he began his journey back home. And upon his arrival, the church members could barely take it, waiting to find out what it was that he learned and experienced while in the United States of America at a pastor's convention in this great country where the church is so strong. And they asked him in unison, what did you learn from the church in America? And the pastor answered this without hesitation. He said, I learned that when American Christians say something, they think they did it. When American Christians say something, they think they've done it. Now, here's why we need to hear this story. Feeling compassion about someone or towards a person is not the same as doing something about it. That's what James was talking about. You see somebody in need and you feel bad about their situation and yet you do nothing to remedy their need. How is that an expression of faith? And listen, unfailing love is going to have to be pursued in order to be practiced, not just felt or even sympathized with those in need around us. And Paul told Titus in 3.14, let our people, the people of the church, learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be what? What's it say? Unfruitful. Now, Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In other words, a person who lives like this isn't going to live under the consequences of the law of God or the law of sowing and reaping. Now, if the first fruit of the Spirit is love and unfruitfulness is a lack of good works, and failing to meet urgent needs. And that tells us that unfailing love is more than just feeling bad about someone's plight and having emotional compassion on them. Unfailing love is a pursuit that requires commitment. It obviously comes with compassion. It's not always going to be convenient, and it will oftentimes have to be sought out, even if only in the sense of being aware of what's going on around us or looking for the opportunity to meet a need. Now, in John 13, 35, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love for who? For one another. Now, we just found out how love is expressed and how unfailing love is to be exercised and practiced in our own lives. And unfailing love should be our primary reputation, along with kindness, that is proven by our actions and not by our expressions, emotions, or words. And recognizing that compassion is more than a feeling, it's something that has to be pursued in order to be expressed. Now, let me leave you with a word of exhortation, since we've all been convicted as American Christians. Now, we are all going to cross paths with someone this week who needs their faith restored, who needs to have some hope. We live in a hopeless world, don't we? 
And people are wandering around, wondering what's going on. People are living in all states of fear. They're fearful of World War III erupting at any moment. Now you add to that the coronavirus. We've got all the things happening around the world geologically and astronomically and all the other things that people are fearful of and about. People need someone to express unfailing love toward them. People need their faith restored. There are people by the millions in our own country who have walked away from the faith that they were raised in in the church and walked away from the relationship they were seeking to establish with God. We need to reconnect them by loving on them and looking for the opportunity to practice unfailing love in their moments and times of need. Now, there's plenty of needs all around us, right? Yeah? I mean, a lot of times we'll find a need outside the grocery store, and I'm not talking about somebody that needs to sell you Girl Scout cookies. I'm talking about somebody that's got a placard that says they're out of work, homeless, they're a vet, God bless you, and the rest of the normal things we usually see on these signs. We encounter these people. There's a, a corner. It's a very active corner for those who are seeking to gain income, some legit, some I'm sure are not. Um, but they're there. There's somebody there every time we go to this particular grocery store by our house. And Terry and I do the same thing every time. We don't just roll down the window and hand out money. We very quickly, Lord, is this somebody you want us to help? Is this, are we financing somebody's habit? Or are we <clears throat> actually going to put food in somebody's stomach? And listen, we can't just pass out all our money. Right? Unless the Lord tells you, sell all you have, give to the poor. But that was something that a young rich uh, ruler had a problem with. So the Lord said, you've got to get rid of what's hindering you. But the fact is, there are needs all around us. Some are great, some are small. Uh, sometimes we can just meet a very practical uh, need by just planning for it. I've practiced this for many, many years. I still do it to this day. And there's a pair in my trunk of my car right now. I've always carried around shoes. Because there was a time uh, in my years and years ago of uh, being a salesman on the road. One of my assigned areas was Los Angeles. And oftentimes I would go through downtown L.A. And a lot of times I'd find my way through Skid Row on my lunch break or on my way home just to drive through and pray or pass out a pair of shoes. And what got me, or a coat, I I carried uh, clothes in my trunk as well, and what got me was one time I saw a little boy walking across the crosswalk. He was probably six or seven, but he had to be wearing a size 12 shoe. And behind the back of his heel was rolled up newspaper so the shoes would stay on his feet. And those shoes were barely shoes. They were so worn out. Obviously, somebody else had worn them down to the ground, but he picked them up so he could have something to cover his feet. And ever, from then on, it was just a burden on my heart to always carry shoes in the trunk of my car. Now, I don't carry women's shoes in case I got pulled over. That wouldn't be, you know, a very good uh, thing for them to find in my truck. But I do carry same-size shoes I wear, my shoes, and uh, hand them out. I just crosswalk right down the street in front of Carl's. A couple of months ago, there was a guy walking across the street barefoot. I pulled over. I actually was on my way to church, turned around, and gave him a pair of shoes. Told him that God loves him. Asked him if I could pray for him. I'm not sure what he said back to me, but I don't think it was very nice. But he had a pair of shoes to walk in from then on. And listen, there are just things we can do. And they're just practical things, but we have to be looking for them. 
We have to seek them out. We have to make the inquiries. And this is what we're all to do. This is to be our primary reputation, that we are kind and loving people. And David gave us such an awesome picture of that. And to the degree that we should put forth the effort and pursue the opportunity to show this kind of unfailing love. Now, you in? Let's do it. Let's make sure we're keeping our eyes and ears open and get our eyes off the black mark. Get our eyes off of those things, especially when we see some of these people that, you know, our minds always go to the same place. You know, why don't they go get a J-O-B? You know, why don't they just, you know, get off the drugs? Why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? How about if we just love them? And if the Lord leads you, do something for them. Even if it's just a momentary respite from their moment of need, maybe it's something as simple as a pair of shoes so their feet aren't in contact with a hot pavement anymore. These are all simple things, right? And they're all around us, aren't they? So let's look for those opportunities and let's build up our reputation of being a loving and kind and caring people, just like the one whose name we bear. Amen? Father, we are grateful for this text tonight. Thank you, Lord, for inserting this in the midst of all the tough things we've been going through uh, in the life of David and the transition from the kingdom of Saul to the kingdom of David, the death of Jonathan, and all the things we read of last week. Thank you for giving us this, uh, this fresh perspective on what kind of man David was and thus what type of person we should be if we want to be someone after your own heart. So we thank you for these lessons tonight. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't simply hear them, but we would be doers of them. And Lord, help us not to allow the busyness of life to crowd out opportunities to increase the reputation of the church and thus the head of the church as being loving, kind, and caring people. Help us in that, we pray, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.